This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Nick Kapoor, assistant professor in the Department of History at Rutgers University, Camden. Dr. Kapoor is the author of Japan at the Crossroads, Conflict and Compromise After Ampo, published by Harvard University Press in 2018. Dr. Kapoor, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thanks for having me. You have this new book coming out called Japan at the Crossroads. Talk about the 1960s in Japan. And of of course, one of the things that happens in the 1960s is in 1968, we have this 100th anniversary of the Meiji Restoration. And, you know, this being the Meiji at 150 podcast, you know, with the sesquicentennial 150th, I was curious if you could talk about what's going on in 1968 and how the 100th anniversary looks different than the 150th anniversary. Yeah, so in 1968, of course, you have a sort of global moment of protest. Um, This has sometimes been called the global revolution of 1968. You have student protests all around the world against various things, including just cramped conditions on college campuses, but of course also the Vietnam War. You have decolonization struggles in Africa and around the third world. And you also have the backdrop of the Cold War and Cold War tensions. And so you have students in particular protesting all around the world, um, workers in some cases, other left-leaning people. And this grows over time. Uh, And Japan is no exception. Japan has significant protests in 1968 and 1969. In fact, they shut down hundreds of universities in 1969 and people actually are not able to graduate. They have to wait an extra year to graduate. So Japan in particular, but also the rest of the world, is in the midst of this global struggle. And in the midst of this, you have the 100th anniversary of the Meiji Restoration. And so people want to celebrate that, but they're also thinking about what's going on in their country and around the world. And you also have an earlier protest movement, and this is really what my book is about, in 1960 against the renewal of the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty, which, of course, is the treaty which even today allows the United States to maintain military troops on Japanese soil. Uh, So obviously those protests failed to prevent the renewal of this important treaty that remains to this day the basis of the U.S.-Japan alliance. But those protests were even larger than the 1968 protests in Japan. They involved a much broader cross-section of Japanese society, including some people on the right, who were against this U.S.-Japan alliance on nationalistic grounds. And that renewal of that treaty in 1960 had a 10-year term, which was set to expire in 1970. So you also have that context where people on the left are looking forward to 1970. They're hoping that there's going to be even bigger protests in 1970 against the 1960 treaty being renewed for another 10 years. And so they're hoping they can use these student protests in 68 as a momentum builder driving into 1970 to have an even larger protest, which they hoped would evolve into perhaps a socialist or communist revolution. And then on the right, you have a kind of panic that there's a rising tide of protests. We already had these huge protests in 1960. We have these protests going on now. And maybe there is going to be a communist revolution in 1970. So we have to prevent that. And so in the midst of all this, you have an attempt to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the Meiji Restoration. And so naturally, 
this drive by the government to commemorate this anniversary got caught up in a lot of these other conflicts. And so is it fair to say that the 1960s is kind of a decade of civil disobedience in Japan? I mean, you mentioned the Anpo protests in 1960. From 65, we have the Beiheiden protest all the way until 70, the student protests in 68. Are we making too much of all of these kind of protest movements going on, or is it kind of a sustained decade of civil disobedience? Well, that's a great question. I think we have this tendency when we look at protests in the United States or other nations and in Japan as well, when you hear this term, the 60s, or we think about the decade of the 1960s, sort of as you just put it, we think of it as a decade of protests. But in the chronology you just mentioned, actually, you notice there's a gap, right? So there's a huge protest in 1960, and then things sort of start to get going. And in 65, you have the diplomatic normalization of relations with South Korea, um, which is sort of the first time in a while that these student protesters have gone back out in the streets. So there's really like a four or five year gap in there. And so this isn't just one long decade of protests. Uh, you have this earlier flare-up in 1960, the Ampo protests that my book is about. But that's really, in my view, the culmination of a very long stream of protests in the 50s uh, and going all the way back into the late 40s that culminates in that moment. And then there's a gap, there's a sort of stepping back. There's what is called by Japanese historians a, a season of schisms. A lot of the groups that supported the 1960 protests sort of fall apart. And then new groups emerge like Beheiren that you mentioned and this these new left protesters among the students. Uh, it takes them a while to coalesce and, and start their own protest movement, which occupies the latter half of the 1960s. One of the things that I always found most remarkable about the 1960 protests is they really it really does span all of Japanese society. You have housewives, farmers, the postal workers, the railway workers who all get in in imposing the Ampo Treaty and taking to the streets. And you mentioned that it goes all the way back into the 50s and 40s. Does it go further back? Can we say that the protests in Tokyo in the 19-teens, for example, or is this an earlier version of the same motivation of protests or maybe the same momentum? Um, well, there's certainly connections across the wartime but I wouldn't really personally tend to connect the protests in the 50s and 60s all the way back that far, other than maybe certain models of how you protest. But these actors are different. They're really a lot of them younger and discovering protest on their own or rediscovering it for themselves. And also the, this fundamental conflict that they were struggling over in the 50s and, and into 1960 was really a conflict that was created by the defeat in World War II. And so that fundamental conflict did not exist in the same sense in the pre-war period. And this was a conflict essentially over Japan's national identity. Uh, and in my view, this has to do with U.S. occupation policy or sort of its two-sided nature. Famously, there was a reverse course or so-called reverse course in, in 1947. So you have this very liberal first part of the U.S. occupation, and then you have this shift. Instead of empowering the left, they start empowering the right. And so... The U.S. occupation sort of creates these two forces 
on the left and the right and gives each of them certain tools and advantages as part of the 1947 Japanese constitution. The left is given various advantages, but then within the reverse course, the right is given certain advantages. They rebuild the police force, they re-centralize authority, they de-purge a lot of the right-wing politicians. And so both sides sort of feel like they have a rightful claim to promote their own version of Japanese identity, and they're really struggling over this in the 1950s. And then you have this culmination in 1960, there's kind of a titanic struggle between these two visions of which direction Japan can go in. Is it going to be in a military alliance with the United States and focus on conservative policies, maybe even revive aspects of the pre-war system? Or is it going to be a very liberal left-wing society that's more neutral in the Cold War conflict, perhaps even heading towards socialism and certainly not reviving the military, keeping Article 9 in place? And so these two sides who have both been empowered in certain ways by the U.S. occupation are fighting it out over the course of the 1950s. And this all culminates in these massive protests in 1960. It's kind of a titanic struggle. And ultimately, neither side completely wins out in, in that struggle. Uh, you do get a military alliance with the United States, but the conservatives aren't able to pursue their larger agenda of reviving aspects of the pre-war system. And obviously, the left loses those protests in a sense. But the prime minister at the time, the conservative prime minister, Kishi, does have to step down. And you have a third course where everyone sort of agrees to disagree, but they will focus on economic growth. And hopefully the rising tide will lift all boats and we won't talk about the Constitution or politics. We'll keep Article 9 and we'll just all focus on getting ours. And so... In my view, this is when you start to get so-called Nihonjin Ron, all these theories come up in the in the late 1960s, kind of building a new national identity around ideas of the uniqueness of the Japanese people. And all Japanese people are going to be the target of this new national identity. It's not going to be emperor-centric. It's not going to focus on international socialism. It's going to focus on the supposedly unique characteristics of the Japanese race. You mentioned in the 1950s, there, there's a lot of these protests. And one of the textbook narratives is that this has a lot to do with the Castle Bravo test. But I wonder if, if it's starting even earlier, because I mean, it seems like there's already a realization on the part of perhaps maybe the left, but just Japanese public that the government is siding with the Americans, particularly in the Korean War. And I wonder if this is already souring not only the perception of the U.S., but also souring the Japanese public's view of the government, leading to more criticism openly of the government and certainly of the United States. Yeah, I mean, this starts earlier. It starts right away with the reverse course is often cited as beginning in 1947 when the Japanese government orders the cancellation of a planned general strike by the labor unions. And then uh, one of the earliest struggles around a U.S. military base starts in the very early 1950s at Uchinada um, military base. And so this struggle is really set up. It, it grows right out of the occupation. And so the Lucky Dragon incident is important. That really helps launch a sort of nationwide peace movement and anti-nuclear movement. But it's it's really a step in sort of the middle of the road along this path of of struggles between left and right 
over what kind of nation Japan is going to be after the defeat in the war. And I was, I was thinking of this film called The Thick Walled Room, written by Abe Kobo, directed by Teshigahara. And it's, it's all about the prisoners of war in Sugamo prison, portraying all of these Japanese war criminals as really just kind of pawns in geopolitics. It's like, well, and there was actually kind of responding to this petition drive that was going on in, in the early 1950s to get these guys out of prison. Right. And it, it talks a lot about the geopolitics of, of the Korean War and how the Japanese government is basically allied with the Americans in a new form of imperialism in East Asia. And it's these former Japanese soldiers who are bearing the brunt of it. Yeah. I mean, that sounds sort of like a right-wing narrative. <laughs> um, certainly on the left, there wasn't a lot of sympathy for those guys in Sugamo prison. But these petition drives are actually quite interesting. You know, there is a sort of right-wing populism or right-wing protest movement. And so I think that's why I talk about sort of right-wing forces and left-wing forces. I don't think it's just sort of left versus the government or the peace movement versus the government or the anti-nuclear movement versus the government or versus the United States. There are these people on the right, or broadly, we could stereotype them as being on the right, but there's veterans associations and bereaved housewives and Shinto shrines who feel they're not quite so happy with the post-war order, you know, retired policemen's and firemen's associations. And, and these people are organizing for various causes that we might call right-wing. And speaking of the student protesters of 68, you're talking about how Maybe they're left, right. It's hard to say because there were right people involved. And I, I remember there's this one photo of Mishima Yukio in particular talking to the Zenkyoto. And does, it doesn't really fall into this this kind of black and white category of left and right. Because here you have an incredibly right wing speaker who's talking to these protesters that we would associate with leftism. Yeah, uh, I think generally it's still fair to say, broadly speaking, it's an new left movement and a lot of the fighting that actually happens between these radical student protesters i mean they're fighting with police one day and then they're beating each other up the next day and they're having their schisms and each subsect is breaking into three smaller subsects a lot of those um, battles between the student protesters in 68 69 70 revolved around kind of from our perspective in the 21st century, obscure doctrinal debates within Marxism and the different camps of international Marxism. So they were basically left-wing. I mean, Mishima Yukio is an interesting character. I mean, he's not, he's certainly a rightist, but he's not sort of a traditional right-wing ideologue. He's a famous author. He's a celebrity. He's kind of almost over-the-top Kind of play acting as an extreme right winger. Um, there's a lot of drama, and it's not clear like how much of this was him indulging in drama, and as opposed to sincerely held right wing beliefs, uh, sort of right wingism as an artistic act almost. And so, yeah, students were willing to hear him out. They were interested in him. They had read some of his uh, literary works. And so I think they were engaging with him in a way that they maybe would not have with a more orthodox right-winger. In terms of how numbers of student protesters, it's how, how many students, and it's still a, a pretty small percentage of the population, right? Yeah, you, I mean, you mentioned the 1960 protests and how broad-based they were. 
And in that case, we're talking about uh, millions of millions of people all around Japan from different walks of life. In 68-69, you have Beheiren, which is an interesting group. They're trying very hard to make that as a so-called shimin undo, right? A citizens movement that involves ordinary citizens. But there's a core of activists who are really driving it. But the other protests are mostly just students. So this is just college students. We're talking at most, you know, a few hundred thousand students out of a country of a hundred million. So these are intense, violent protests on these campuses. They have to shut down many, many of the campuses, as I mentioned. But this is not a massive section of uh, the Japanese population. And then in the midst of all of this, in 1968, we have the Japanese government produces this centennial celebration of the Meiji Restoration. And you're saying that this is kind of a, a reaction to this moment. So how are they organizing this? What, what does the celebration look like? And then how is it being used to present this new political narrative? Yeah, so you have a conservative government in 1968. This is the government of Sato Eisaku. He's the younger brother of Kishi Nobusuke, the prime minister who was forced to resign in the 1960 Anpo protests. You know, incidentally, Kishi is the grandfather of the current prime minister, Prime Minister Abe, and so Sato would be his great uncle. And they share a general ideology. They, they did want to revise the Japanese constitution to return it to more along the lines of the Meiji constitution, where it's not just about the rights that citizens have, but also their duties to the state to sacrifice for the nation. And so he has this conservative outlook, and he's looking around and seeing all these protests, and he's not happy with that. And he feels we need something to revive national pride and patriotism, that it shouldn't be all about socialist revolution or criticizing Japan's past. We need a new optimistic vision. And so they're looking back on these hundred years of Meiji really with pride and sort of ignoring or eliding anything bad that happened in those hundred years. And then thinking ahead that there's going to be another hundred years. And in a hundred years from now, we're going to celebrate the 200th anniversary. And by then we want to have a stronger nation that's not riven by these internal divisions. So we need to recreate this pre-war patriotism that these older men running the Japanese government looked back on fondly as a time when we had national unity, we weren't always protesting and, and fighting with each other. And so they really hoped that the 1968 centennial celebration could be a moment, really, in a way, they hoped it could be non-political. This is going to be a moment when we all come together as a nation and think about the proud achievements that we Japanese have accomplished in these past hundred years, and hopefully not talk too much about the war or any of the bad stuff that happened along the way. But they were sensitive to the fact that maybe not everyone was ready uh, for a new birth of patriotism in Japan. And so Sato Eisaku was actually pretty cautious initially when people said, hey, shouldn't we have a big national celebration to celebrate the 100th anniversary of Meiji? Initially, he thought maybe that's not a good idea. There was discussion of creating some kind of private organization or sort of laundering government money through some kind of private foundation that would plan and run the ceremony so that it wouldn't look like the government was sponsoring nationalism openly. But Sato ultimately changes his mind, and he decides, no, the government should directly sponsor this national celebration of the Meiji Centennial. And in the first meeting of the government planning committee to plan this celebration, 
he explains why he changed his mind. And to me, this explanation is so interesting. He says, you know, originally I wasn't sure about this, but then I read uh, Shiba Ryotaro's um, novel, Ryoma ga Yuku, right? Um, Sakamoto Ryoma goes forth. And I realized that the Meiji restoration and the Meiji spirit is so important to our nation that we just have to have a real big celebration uh, and make a big deal out of this. And so that really sort of clued me into just how important this particular novel is. And it, it happened to come out right at that time, around 1965, when they were thinking about what kind of celebration to have. And it, it made me think of things that I've noticed, you know, just how popular Sakamoto Ryoma is as a historical figure in Japan, even now today, whenever they do a taiga drama about Ryoma, it's always a huge hit and, and way ahead in the ratings compared to the other historical figures. And I actually asked a pretty well-known Japanese historian about this. I mean, I'm not going to name names, but, you know, I said, why does everyone love Sakamoto Ryoma so much? I mean, looking back at the actual historical figure, he doesn't seem to have really accomplished all that much. He's credited with a lot more than he actually did. He was killed before he could really do anything. And, you know, of course, I assumed he as a historian would agree uh, with this point of view, but he said, no, I think Sakamoto Ryoma is great. Um, <laughs> you know, he's a really important figure in, in Japanese history. <laughs> I said, why? Why do you think he's so great? And he said, well, he had Akogare, right? He had this sort of <laughs> sense of ambition or, or longing. or right. and, and he said, today's Japanese people don't have that Akogare, and we need to recover that. So even this very liberal kind of left-leaning historian um, had this very rosy view of at least one major restoration figure. And I said, you know, does this really make sense? <laughs> I sort of pushed back, and he said, well, you know, when I was 12 years old, I read Yomaga Yuku, <laughs> and that's when I decided to be a historian. And I said, wow, this has to be one of the most culturally important novels of the post-war period. So what was the reaction to this 1968 centennial? Were there, re were there protests against it? I understand some of the historians at the time weren't really in line with it. Yeah, so the historians uh, really strongly opposed this. Pretty much all of the leading historical journals of the day and historical professional associations came out against it, as did the archaeologists and, and people in related fields. You know, they said this is a clear attempt to revive pre-war militarism and fascism under the guise of celebrating the Meiji period. And they really took it personally because pretty much all the historians, you know, at least the major societies and the journals were dominated by Marxist historiography. And this has to do with, as I'm sure you're aware, in the immediate aftermath of the defeat in the war, communists came out smelling like roses, and they were able to convince people that they had been the only ones to stand up against pre-war militarism. And that wasn't entirely true, but that was persuasive at the time. And so a lot of historians came over to a very kind of doctrinaire Marxist historiography or historical tradition. And th th this was still the case even in the 60s. I mean, some people were starting to invent, um, you know, this new people's history. People were trying to open up new avenues. But most of the senior historians were still in this camp. And for them, the his history that they'd been writing and teaching was that the major restoration was a failed revolution. This was a failure that led kind of directly in a straight line to defeat in World War II, and that there was nothing to celebrate about the Meiji restoration, that this was really a disaster for Japan. And so for the government to take sides in this debate 
especially, you know, they had felt threatened by the fact that Hayashi Fusao had just written this book called In Defense of the Greater East Asian War, sort of revisionist history that, he, although he admitted that maybe Japan didn't do everything correctly in East Asia, he, he argued that their intentions were good and moreover that the war actually had positive consequences. You know, this is sort of the standard Yasukuni Jinja argument today that the Pacific War freed Asia from Western imperialism. And so they, fe- they felt they were already under a threat and now the government's taking sides and they're going to say that these past hundred years were great and the Meiji Restoration was important and good and we should all be proud of it. And so they had a huge petition campaign to try to stop the centennial celebration. They wrote tons of articles in their professional journals. But interestingly enough, these protests against the Meiji centennial really did not grow beyond these academics and their academic journals, as far as I've been able to tell. I mean, even the radical leftist students didn't really protest the centennial celebrations at all. So we've talked so much about the 100th anniversary. Do you have any thoughts on the meaning of the 150th or or the kind of issues surrounding 150? I think they're similar. I mean, I think it has to do with the enduring myths that have been built around the Meiji Restoration. I mean, as a historian primarily of the post-war period, I'm really interested in the uses of the Meiji Restoration as as an image, as an idea, as a sort of historical memory. And I think that makes these anniversaries similar in some ways, or they at least echo each other. You know, I think, what does the Meiji Restoration mean today? What did it mean at the time? For me, one of the major answers to that question is it's sort of the founding myth of modern Japan in that that Japan is somehow different, certainly from other Asian countries, but maybe even compared to Western countries, that Japan was an exception, that the Japanese people are going to get the job done, they're going to avoid being colonized, they're going to rapidly modernize faster than anyone has ever seen. And then you have an echo of that in the post-war recovery, right? So these two events, even people I meet in the United States who don't know much about history or about Japanese history have often heard of the Meiji Restoration, or they pair these two events, the the post-war recovery and the Meiji Restoration. You can never count Japan out because they're always going to rise from the ashes or they're going to stand up and quickly overtake us. And Japanese people have been equally proud of this in this same sense. They're sort of co-producing these myths or, or maybe entirely producing them, and we're just picking up on that in the West. This was part of the pre-war nationalism, um, how proud Japan was that they stood up to the West. And the sort of shadow lurking here is the counterexample of China, which was effectively colonized by the West and divided into spheres of influence and dominated by Western imperialist powers. And I think the Chinese themselves are also very aware of the Meiji Restoration even now. Um, It's always in the back of their minds. Uh, Of course, famously, Chinese nationalism has anti-Japanese component that comes out from time to time, but Japan is also sort of always a model in the minds of Chinese leaders and, and Chinese people that The Meiji Restoration is what we should have done in China. Why didn't we do that? Instead, we got the Opium Wars and we were dominated by Western imperialist powers. But if only we were strong enough, we could have resisted that. And how was Japan strong enough? Well, they built up their army and their economic power. This is the famous Meiji slogan, right? Fukoku Kyohei, rich country, strong army. 
And this is what China is trying to do today, right, is build up their military, get rich so that they can stand apart and independent from relying on Western nations and be powerful and not be dominated by Western culture or I mean, nowadays, maybe the imperialism people are afraid of is more cultural imperialism. And so Meiji, I think, is still in people's minds today and, and not just scholars. It's not, it hasn't been relegated to the dustbin of history in, in that sense. And then, of course, you have this sort of echo of Meiji in the post-war period. Japan recovers so quickly from total devastation at the hands of the United States and becomes this leading economic power. You have this income doubling plan in the 1960s where they say they're going to double national GDP and then they actually do it ahead of schedule um, in just seven years instead of the 10 years that was promised. And you see Chinese leaders today talk about, we need our own income doubling plan. And and this ties into the protests we've been talking about as well, that in China today, we need to get rich as quick as possible to prevent popular protests against our repressive policies. And income doubling in Japan was also used as a weapon to sort of attenuate the tide of, of protest. And so you have these two parallels, these these two kind of signature accomplishments of the Japanese nation and the Japanese people in the minds of Japanese people and others outside in the rest of the world, the Meiji Restoration and the the post-war recovery. And when they were commemorating the Meiji Centennial, they also had these two events in mind as kind of parallel. Sato Eisaka, the prime minister, in his planning meetings, he talked about how the period after defeat in World War II was like a second Bakumatsu period, right? A second time period similar to the time period just before the Meiji Restoration, where Japan had fallen under the domination of a foreign power and had become weak and corrupt, and that we need a a new kind of Meiji Restoration. Of course, anytime historians heard this kind of talk, they immediately equated this to a right-wing slogan, which was Showa Restoration, right? Showa Ishin. So these right-wingers and right-wing ideologues had been calling for, we need a, a second Meiji Restoration, a Showa Restoration, just like we threw off the foreign powers and put the Meiji Emperor in charge. We need to have an, another revival of a more emperor-centered polity for national unity and for resisting being dominated by other countries. So that was sort of the meaning to the conservative government and the right-wingers in 68. And I think it's probably not as strong with the 150th anniversary. I mean, I haven't researched this in detail, but I don't know what Abe is saying in private meetings. But I think it's a similar idea that we need to revive a sense of Japanese pride. This is another period where certain people in Japan, especially on the right, are feeling a little bit down about where the mindset of the Japanese people is, and they would like to recreate a sense of patriotism, a sense of duty to the nation. And so in that sense, the 150th anniversary certainly ties into that. The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, meijiat150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.